Uh, so we're going to start here this morning into the message. Um, I had planned on doing something. You ever have a plan? Yeah, it doesn't work all the time with God. Uh, so I had a plan, and then God changed my plan. So this morning, I, you know, I don't want to say, you know, this is the word of, you know, I'm, but, you know, I'm just saying. Holy Spirit came in and said, hey, hey, I want you to talk about this. So take it, take it or leave it. All right. So this morning, I want to I, I just start with the title. I, uh, I, I'm calling this morning the American Artemis. If anybody has read the Bible, the New Testament particularly, you might come across the name Artemis. You might hear that name Artemis somewhere in Acts, somewhere in Ephesians, somewhere in Timothy. You might find this name coming up. And so I wanted to call this morning the American Artemis, but I don't, you know, a lot of times we'll, we'll come up with a title and then we'll explain the title. That's not exactly my intention today. My intention today is maybe to have you think, is to, is to kind of present you all the stuff and let you sort through it and decide for yourself, maybe what is the American Artemis? What is the American uh, the goddess that influences us, and maybe, maybe the names changed, but maybe the things that she represented still permeate our culture. So that's kind of where I want to go this morning, but first we need to define who Artemis is for those of you who aren't Greek scholars. All right, so Artemis is the goddess of the hunt, the wilderness, wild animals, nature, vegetation, childbirth, care of children, and chastity. All right, this is the goddess, that, this was the favorite goddess of the Greeks, okay? They had, they had a whole bunch of gods and goddesses. This was the favorite one, all right? She, not only was she beautiful, but she represented all the, th- you know, food, family, uh, security, no acts of crazy nature, right? Just serenity almost, and, and they loved this goddess. And so what she represented, because if you have, if you have, um, wild animals, the hunt, all of that, you have meat, you have fur, you have leather, you have provision, the god of nature and vegetation, you have your, your vegetables, your fruits, your grains, you have a, a storehouse, so to speak, a guaranteed source of what you need, a guaranteed source of the necessities. You rely on the laws of nature and the goddess Artemis who, perce- who oversees it, and she supplies. Uh, this, this goddess means no natural disaster. This goddess means that her favor means childbearing. Her favor means no miscarriages. Her favor means a strong family, which you have food, shelter, guaranteed safety, a, a strong family. This is everything that you would want. The favor of Artemis was something that the Greeks sought to uh, achieve. But if that's her favor... Well, her unfavor or her wrath would be the opposite, which would be something more along the lines of uh, starvation, thirst, volatile acts of nature, miscarriages, uh, families breaking apart. All of this would be the wrath of Artemis. All the things outside of our control would fall apart if Artemis was upset. And so the Greeks, they, they not only loved this God, they relied on it, or they, so they thought, to fulfill their necessities and their needs, right? Because if you don't have food, a, a nation turns over real quick. And so I want to start this morning and give you a backdrop. We're going to get into Acts 19, but I needed to talk about who Artemis is, and now I'm going to give you a little backdrop of, of 
where Artemis is and who is around Artemis here in Acts 19. So uh, Artemis is the god of the goddess of the Greeks. Okay, the Greeks were a, a, a strong, powerful people for a long time until randomly Rome and Cartha, Carth, uh, the Carthaginians got in a little tiff and they got in a war and that war subsided. And that war is, is fascinating. If you, ever, if you ever want to study the veracity of the Roman Empire, they, they didn't have a navy at all. And then they went against a trading superpower who had one of the most powerful navies. The Romans took one of their ships, copied it, made a navy, sailed off, beat the tar out of the, the Carthaginians, tried to sail back, got caught in a storm, and, and like 100,000 soldiers just gone. So naturally, Rome um, builds a whole new navy because, you know, that's what Rome did. And then they built a new navy, and they decided, hey, we're going to go out to war again. They go out to war, they hit a storm, and they all die again. So naturally, Rome's like, let's build another navy. You know, remember, they didn't have a navy at the start. And now they're on their third navy, and they eventually, you know, beat the Carthaginians. And then there's a second war where Greece decides to take the side of the group the, that didn't build three navies in the span of three decades, uh, which I thought, you know, you'd think if you're going erring on the side of, of which one, it would be the ones that have insane tenacity and veracity. But anyways, the, the Greeks, they joined the Carthaginians. They, they, they lost again. The Roman Empire expanded, and it took over a bunch of nations. It took over a bunch of land. Greece being one of them. Now, Greek, the Greeks' culture was one of the most profound cultures in the world, and the Romans didn't want to mess with it. In fact, they adopted Greek culture. That's why if you study the Greek gods and the Roman gods, they're exactly the same. They just changed the name, essentially. What, they called, what the Greeks called Zeus became Jupiter. What the Greeks called uh, um, Poseidon to the Romans became Neptune. And what the Greeks called Artemis, the Romans then called Diana. If you've ever heard of the name Diana, that's the other name for Artemis. And so this is all going on now. This is about 200 years before Jesus. Greece fell, became Rome. So there's still a lot of Greek culture, probably some patriotism. But they really, you know, one of the things that they got to keep was their gods and goddesses. And that's something very sacred to them. And so don't you dare come and mess what's sacred to us. All right, we already thought we might lose it with Rome, but they let us keep it. And so, so the, the entire culture has built themselves around their gods and goddesses. That's their religion. And there's a city called Ephesus that was in Greece and now is Roman territory. They were the city that basically contained the temple of Artemis. So flash forward, we have somebody named Paul in this city of Ephesus. The once Greek, now Roman city of Ephesus that worships the Greek god Artemis. Okay, he's bringing a new god to those people, a god that they haven't heard of. And he has been there for two years, um, preaching, teaching, performing miracles. He's been arguing uh, with other, other religions and other sects of Judaism and all of that. And he's been really propagating this Christ character. And so he's promoting Jesus in a place that's the temple of Artemis. It's the... the, the containers of Artemis, and he is bringing this Jesus character in, okay, which doesn't usually bode well. But as he's doing it, he, he has been there for two years. He's starting to feel like the people who were going to convert, converted. The people who weren't going to convert, aren't going to convert. I'm going to move on. I'm an apostle. I'm going to go somewhere else. And so he's getting ready to leave. He's kind of on his way. And there's a, a group of guys, about seven um, disciples, who go out and try to cast a demon out of a man. I don't know if you've heard this story, okay? They try to cast a demon out. And it doesn't go well because they're like, 
you know that Jesus guy that Paul preaches about? Yeah, we do it in his name. And they're like, uh, yeah, we heard of Jesus. And we heard of Paul. But you, we have not. And the one guy beats up the seven guys, you know, hand to hand. It says they left bloody and naked. I don't know how bad of a beating you need to get to run out bloody and naked. One versus seven guys. I don't really know how that all happened. But the guy took over all these seven people. And you would think, man, that's, a, that's kind of a blow to the Christian church. But if you read on, and, and this is kind of pulling out of the story, you find that the, the, what happened, the, the repercussions of that were actually the opposite of what we would have expected. So in, in my understanding is, is that it's probably a chance that a lot of the sorcerers and the, and the mystics, they knew of this demon-possessed guy. You know, he, he, they, they must have known him because that, what happened there caused a bunch of sorcerers and a bunch of mystics to come and renounce all their stuff. It says uh, in, in Acts 19, it says they burned all of their, their, their witchcraft uh, belongings and all of that were 50,000 silver uh, coins, which is the equivalent of 50,000 hours of labor. They just burn, turn to Jesus. It was crazy because they're like, well, if, if the demon guy, if the demons themselves are recognizing Jesus, I think they were like, okay, well, he must be a big deal. You know, those disciples, maybe not, but even the demons recognize the name of Jesus and his name became more powerful, okay? But remember, there's already a God here in this town called Artemis. And now this Christian church is blowing up and becoming bigger and bigger and bigger. And so we're going to pick up in Acts 19, uh, verse 23. So we have all this stuff going on. It says, um, in Acts 19, 23, it says, about that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. The way being the Christian uh, group that's out there. So everybody's starting to freak out about this. Now all these sorcerers, all these people, all these other God worshipers, they're starting to turn to this Jesus guy. We have a problem. Something's going on. Okay, so this is great disturbance. It was a silversmith named Demetrius. This is verse 24. Again, Acts 19, if you're not there. Uh, who made silver shrines of Artemis. Brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. I love this. He called them together along with the other workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. Hey, guys, you know that thing that gets us lots of money? It's got our pension. It's got our retirement plan. You know, it's got our Netflix subscription tied to it. You know, we got, we, got, we, got, we got this great income stream coming here. Okay, you know that? And you see how this Paul guy, it says in verse 20, uh, 26, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray a large number of people here in Ephesus and, protect, and, and practically the whole providence of Asia, Asia. Notice he's saying, hey, our domestic sales and our international sales, this guy's causing a problem. We need to deal with this, all right? Uh, he says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. That doesn't go well for somebody making gods by human hands. Uh, so there is a danger that not only our trade will lose its good name, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the providence of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. I do particularly enjoy the fact that the, the first problem is the money and the revenue stream and, and the security, and then the second problem is, oh yeah, and the goddess, we, we want to protect her too. You know, don't mess with our ways and our money, but then also don't mess with our gods too. That's the second thing he comes up with. So in, uh, in verse 28, it says, when they heard this, <laughs> so when uh, Demetrius kind of tells them this, they were furious and began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, 
Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Uh, even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. So they couldn't find Paul. So they get his closest people. And I love it because he's you know, it's like Paul's like, let me at him, let me at him. And they're like, no, no, stop, don't do it. You know, don't go there. Clearly, they didn't want him to go for a reason. Most likely because it was very dangerous to be there. And so they're in this theater and the assembly was in confusion. Uh, some were shouting one thing, some were another. Uh, some were shouting another. I, I, I kind of had this imagery of it where, you know, you got, you got your Artemis worshipers, you got your, your Jew haters, and then you got your kind of people that are just like, there is an angry crowd and I want to see what happens. So they're just like running around, just kind of saying things randomly. Uh, you know, you have, you have uh, great is Artemis, down with the Jews, go Cowboys. Like all this stuff is being said in the middle of this, in the middle of this kind of chaos, so to speak, right? And so this, this chaos is happening. And, um, and most of the people did not even know why they were there. Love it. That's great. So the Jews in the crowd pushed a, a man named Alexander to the front, and they, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for signing. They're all like, hey, hey, you go do it. You go deal with it, right? And so they shouted uh, instructions to him. Uh, he motioned for silence uh, in order to make a defense before the people, but when, he real, when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Just a a fever in this crowd to just continuously say, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Their identity as the Ephesian people were in Artemis. Artemis was part of their, their culture, part of their people, part of their heritage, part of the very thing that maybe they thought they would lose uh, from Rome but got to keep. You know, don't you go after Artemis. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Because they're saying two things. They're saying our, Artemis is our God. There's no other gods and you can't mess with you can't mess with it, right? They're kind of calling them out. And so in verse 35, the city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. Everybody knows Ephesus and Artemis will never be separated. Everybody knows that the Ephesian people will always be known for Artemis. Ironically, I had to give you the definition of who Artemis is. And if I said, what does the word Ephesians make you think of? You'd probably say the Bible. Today, I think it's interesting. They thought there was no way, there was no way that the, the Ephesian people and Artemis would ever be separated like that to now the point where we know the Ephesians, we, we think of the book of the Bible and Ephesus, the city that Paul was at, the one that Christ did work. Like, it's interesting that Christ is now synonymous with Ephesians versus what they said it would never, ever happen. So in verse 37, you have brought these men here and though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed in our godness, uh, if then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. 
as it, as it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After that, uh, he dismissed the assembly. So he's literally saying, yeah, no, listen, this is, this is a riot. I can't even, oh, that rhymes, deny it, right? But it is a riot, I can't, I can't deny it, but, but you need to all stop because this is actually illegal and you're, you're going crazy. You need to stop it. There, these guys are no threat. Christianity will never overtake the Roman and Greek gods. There is no way. You know, we're, we were Greece, but now we're Roman, and Roman is the superpower. Nothing's going to ever bring down Rome, right? And so they have this, you know, this, this, this conclusion. But what's interesting is they're, they're all sitting there saying that this just Jesus follower is bad for business. Um, and they're standing against Artemis. They're standing against the idea of our God, and we need to stop them. They're messing, interfering with our ways of life. And so they grab Paul's partners. They they, they say Ephesus is the home of Artemis. In fact, they say Ephesus is the guard of Artemis' temple. And eventually their, their riot is dismissed and, and set up, uh, sent away. And that's where the story ends in Acts. But that story, if you understand how the Bible was created, is not over yet. Okay? It keeps going. It just isn't recorded in the book of Acts here. This, what happens is Paul, he's, everywhere he's put work, he plants people. That, that can stay and maintain the work that was, that was done. And so there's a man named Timothy. Have you ever heard of Timothy? He is the one that is sent by Paul in order to take care of this, this church in Ephesus, this Christian church in Ephesus. And he, and he calls him to be the leader there. And that's where we get the, book, uh, the books of 1 and 2 Timothy. And, the, and these books are some of the most uh, popular books to, to say how to run a church and what to do. But in, uh, in 2 Timothy 1.13, I want to read something that kind of caught my eye. In, in 2 Timothy 1.13, it says, this is Paul talking to Timothy, What you heard from me, keep as a pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. I've heard that preached. I've heard it preached dozens, if not more, uh, times. And I always heard it, you know... The, Guard the good seed, guard the good message, guard the good word, guard the good uh, lessons that I taught you. But that would be redundant because he just said, what you heard from me, keep it as a pattern of sound teaching. Then he says, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And I started thinking about this and really kind of mulling through it. And I come to realize, okay, we have Paul and his team and his people out in Ephesus for years, sowing into this place, sowing into these people building a church out of nothing. And he entrusts Timothy with that church. And I can't get around the idea that when he says, guard the good deposit entrusted to you, he was talking about the church that was entrusted to Timothy, the one that they worked so hard on. But hold on. Timothy is the guard of the Christian church. And if you understand Christian vernacular, the the church is the people, right? Right? the people. The temple of God is the people now. It's gone from a physical temple to we are the temple. That's where you have Paul saying your body is a temple, all of that. So in essence, Timothy is the, the guardian or the guard of the temple of Christ in Ephesus. But wait a second. We just read that Ephesus is the guard of the temple of Artemis. So you have a city that's the guard of the temple of Artemis and Timothy that's the guard of the temple of Jesus. And they're in the same spot. 
That doesn't usually go well. Two opposing views existing in the same spot. We don't have anything in the canon of Scripture that says how Timothy died, but the best, uh, the best uh, recollections of what happened are that Timothy basically went out as a martyr opposing the gods and goddesses being promoted in Ephesus as he guarded his people and his church to be pure and Christ-centered and not allowing the other influences to come in. And so what we see here, though, is the Romans and the Greeks could not stand the message of Jesus because it messed with their way of life in this story. All right? And so what we see is Christ versus Artemis. The message of Christ is threatening to the existence of Artemis. In fact, if you follow all religion, the message of Christ is really threatened threatening to every single god and goddess that's ever been, all right, including yourself in some cases. And so I I have here the church was meant to define their culture based on Christ. The church was not meant to affirm culture in an attempt to add Christ to it. This is big because they could have tried to add Jesus in to the mix because that's what everyone did then. Everybody just added more gods into the picture and nobody would say anything. It's like, oh, you do that, I do this, you do that. But when these guys are saying no God made by hand is a God at all and only Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, is to be worshipped here. Well, you can't have that. You can't say other people's gods are wrong. You can say your God and their God and their God. It can be an and, but Paul's making it an or. And that was unacceptable. And so he shook, he shook these people and his, and his group shook these people. And so I, I guess what I want to get at is this idea that in our culture, I feel like a lot of times we're trying to add Christ to the mix of our lives and not make him define our lives. And so do we serve security and tradition and revenue stream or do we serve Jesus Christ? Do we serve Christ or Artemis? Which one is it? Is it the one that guarantees that we have our meat and our food? Or is it the one that sends us into something we don't even know anything about, but he called us there? Do we, do we, do we sacrifice or lose the gospel in attempts to make it risk adverse? To say, oh, no, no, you can still have the, that, that, that goddess or that god of safety and security, the safe and sound. You can still keep that. But then you can add Jesus to it, and it's okay. It's great. It's not going to change anything. It's not going to require or cost you anything to be a follower of Jesus. Well, that doesn't go very well when you read the book of Acts, I'll tell you that. If you think it doesn't cost you anything. Grace is free, but following Jesus will cost you. All right? So uh, we have jobs, routines, luxuries, hobbies, and even church sometimes. Do these all submit to Christ? Or do we try to worship Artemis and Christ at the same time? Is the Christian faith something that rocks you to the core? changing the status, your status quo, or is it just another club to participate in on Sundays and maybe Wednesdays, and if you're super spiritual, you come to small groups? Right, Josh? Yeah. That's a plug. You like that? Uh, all right. So, but here's, here's, what, here's what I find when I'm reading Scripture and when I'm understanding Christianity. The gospel is it's truth, and it's freedom, and it's a total threat to your old way of life. It's a total threat to the other gods. It's, it's a notice to say, Artemis, your time, it's, it's, it's coming to an end. Your God is no God at all. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. And so it's, it's, a, it's a calling card that says, I'm, you know, I'm coming for you. I'm coming for your people and there's no other options. It's not Jesus and it's only Jesus. 
And so when, when it, we, we have this threat of our old way, of our safe and sound, of our, secu- our secure ways, and Artemis really being the God of nature is the God of the laws of nature. And that's where I find a lot of Christians struggle. We love the laws of nature. We love the survival of the fittest. We love to promote some of these, these natural laws. But Christ always seemed to subvert natural laws whenever he would preach and teach. Um, and so I actually, at some, at some points throughout history, during the medieval times, during some other eras, the church actually became so powerful, they would become kind of the security blanket for people. They would, they would be the ones that would, you know, that would control, take all the freedom away and control just so people would be safe. And I, I don't, I don't want to get in, that's not trying to get into politics, and I just thought of this on the moment, but, you know, we had, um, we had the, uh, the pandemic recently. And so my wife and I were in Pennsylvania. Everybody was still wearing masks, and we got the job here and moved down, and no masks. Well, yeah, you know, no masks. I forgot about, you know, after a while, I think we took a trip to Phoenix, and we had to put the mask on on the plane. I was like, oh, man, I forgot how much I hated these. These are terrible, Right? <laughs> And so, and so, you know, whatever, and I'm living here, and then I'm, I'm listening to somebody in it, talking from L.A., and this is like a year now without me wearing a mask, and they're still wearing, you know, they're still keeping the mandate and the, and the mask wearing, and I'm just like, oh, well, we've been, all, we've been all here not even thinking about it, really, and, and, and they're still, it's every day, and, and that safety and security, you know, at some point, it's like, okay, well, now they're finally opening up, and I'm like, oh, what was the difference from a year ago to two years ago, whatever, Anyways, well, my point being is that a lot of the church will end up putting on a, a mask or putting on some things to, to keep us in check or to keep us safe or not rock the boat or not challenge anybody or, or make a really watered-down message that's not going to cause any change in people's lives, but that, that's not the message of Jesus. And so I have a, I have a, uh, a quote here I want to read just because I found it fascinating uh, more than anything else, and it's from a, a, a Russian writer named Fyodor uh, Dostoevsky, and he wrote this in the 1800s in Russia. Uh, he was resident of Moscow. He wrote a lot of stuff if you really want to challenge yourself. But he wrote a story, and in the story, one of his characters tells a story. So this is, this is a made-up story. But it's a very interesting story. It's, the, it's called The Grand Inquisitor. I don't know if anybody ever heard it. But it's really fascinating. It has this, this depiction of like a, a devil-like character interrogating Jesus. And I'm going to read it to you. It says, The Grand Inquisitor entered the darkened cell and began a severe reprimand of Christ. For appearing again and hindering the work of the church. Oh, man. The Grand Inquisitor explains to Christ that because of his rejection of the three temptations, he placed an intolerable burden of freedom upon man. That church, however, is correcting his errors and aiding man by removing those aw- the, the awful burden of freedom. He explains that Christ erred when he, accepted, when he expected man to voluntarily choose him. The basic nature of man, says the Inquisitor, does not allow him to reject either earthly bread or security or happiness in exchange for something so as indefinite as what Christ expects. If Christ had accepted the proffered bread during the temptations, uh, man would have been given security instead of freedom of choice. And if Christ had performed a miracle and cast him down from the pinnacle, man would have been given something miraculous to worship. The nature of man, insists the Inquisitor, is to seek the miraculous. Finally, Christ should have accepted the power offered to him by the devil because because he did not. The church is now to assume such power for the benefit of man. And since Christ's death, the church has been forced to correct the errors made by him. Now at last, mankind willingly submits its freedom to the church in exchange for happiness and security. This balance, says the Inquisitor, 
must not be upset. Man, that's harsh. But how many times do we err on happiness and security over the call of Christ in our lives? When the Holy Spirit says, I need you to leave that job. Ooh, wait a second. But I'm almost, I almost saved up enough money. I need you to go to this, go to this country and serve there. I need to go to Christ for the nations. Got a whole group here, right? Uh, I need to go to Christ for the nations and, and, and randomly in Dallas, Texas. I got to leave my home, my family, and I got to go. I got, you know, whatever it is, I need to give up that thing that's keeping me back. I need to let go of that hobby. I need to stop doing this. I need to start doing that. Then it becomes difficult because we have our safety, our security, our ways of life. Great as Artemis. Don't mess with it, Jesus. Please, just be an addition. Don't mess around with the way things are in our lives. And so you cannot serve both Christ and Artemis, and you cannot make a religion out of Artemis. You cannot make your religion uh, based on Artemis. All right, when Christ calls us, and the uh, team can come up. Uh, when, Christ, when Christ calls us, security, comfort, familiarity, and reliance on the natural laws become threatened. So many times in Scripture and in the church, when Christ and the Holy Spirit moves, it's in opposition to what you're doing. Because God wants calling you to something greater, something different, something better. But it's going to cost what you already have. The rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and says, I've done everything. And he says, sell all you have. Oh, no, that costs too much. Jesus, uh, we, we, we talked about in the youth group recently, when, when Jesus is, is giving the Lord's Prayer, he says, give us this day our daily bread. And that's in reference to when the Israelites were surviving day by day. Not weekly bread, not monthly bread, not yearly uh, uh, food, food card, but it, something very day by day by day by day. And he was teaching his people, you might think you rely on food, but you really rely on God. And then in that story, he even goes later and he says, you know, one day you'll realize you have more than enough bread. You'll sell it to other nations, but you still rely on me. And that's what Jesus was trying to communicate. We rely on God day by day by day by day by day. And to, to rely on him means sometimes you don't know where your food's coming from tomorrow. And I've heard testimony after testimony after testimony after testimony of people who they finally let go of something that they thought they, they, thought they couldn't live without and they came alive. And, and honestly, this, this message was stirred a little bit by some of the people that are, are closer to us in the church. We had a, a moment where a whole bunch of people were having a transition some people were changing their jobs. Some people were pursuing something new. Some people were leaving their jobs. Some people were going somewhere new. And it all happened at once. And everybody's like, ah, oh, this is, this, is, this is changing everything we've been doing to do something new because we feel like God's calling us. And that is walking in the ways of God. We leave that comfort and security of Artemis and we begin to, uh, to, to kind of shape out a new, a new path, all right? And so when Christ calls his disciples, they end up in prison. They end up in mobs. They end up in shipwrecks. They don't always end up in the safe and sound, secure places. But I guarantee you, Paul wouldn't trade it for the world. He wouldn't say, oh, I got in a shipwreck. It's over. Notice he kept going. He's like, this is, I live for this. Jesus is, is the way, the truth, the lie. It's the only thing I live for. It doesn't matter what circumstances happen. I'm not saying you're all going to, if you follow God's call, you're going to end up in a shipwreck. But what I am saying is it'll change some of the trajectory. And do not let 
the safe and sound keep you from following the voice of God. I think our faith in God, it should be a, in a God that leads us into the unknown. Uh, I, I find it, I always, I'm a big, big fan of the expansion west in, in, in the early Americas where everyone was pioneering out to brand new land that had never been discovered. And you figure these people, they didn't have a home, they were going, you don't know what's going to happen next. I feel like that's a cool imagery to talk about with, with, with God, that expansion west into the unknown. But you can't get into the unknown by standing in place and enjoying the safe and sound. But to be one of those people that saw these places for like the very first time or saw, you know, running into the Rocky Mountains, I can't imagine. Just being like, oh. Well, first of all, being like, oh, that's going to be a problem. But second of all, I mean, they're so beautiful, right? They're so amazing. And then finally hitting the Pacific Ocean, just being like, this is crazy. But I think our faith in God should look a little bit more like that. And so this morning, as we kind of, as we wrap up here, our flesh wants us to run back to the natural laws, but God will lead us into the unknown. But he promised to never leave us or forsake us. And the, the scariest thing that could ever happen, well, he already made a plan for that, right? I think that's the most interesting thing when it comes to the Christian faith, where these early, they, they got it. They're like, even death, we win. We win if we follow the call of God. We win if they, if they try to hurt us. We win if they try to slight us. We win if they take everything away. And we win if they die, or if we die. We, we're victorious because we're in Christ Jesus. And so this morning as we go into worship, I just want to take some time for everybody and maybe we can sing the song and, and worship, but also to reflect where in my life is the safe and sound overriding the call of Christ. I've been called to do this. I've been called to reach out to that person or to do this ministry or to speak to these people, but I'm not doing it because it'll mess with my, I, I can't, I don't have the time. Well, maybe you need to sacrifice some things to make time, right? Or maybe I don't want to sacrifice my free time. Same thing. Whatever it is, I just want, I want the whole, give some time for the Holy Spirit to speak in us, but also worship Jesus and worship God this morning. So as the worship team leads, everybody, everybody can stand up and we'll, we'll get into this. But ask God, what, what is it that maybe you, you want me to give up? What are the things that I'm holding on to because I'm too afraid to let it rot my way of life? Go ahead. What creation suddenly articulate with a thousand tongues to lift one cry from north to south and east to west we'd hear Christ be magnified
God, I pray that we search our hearts and check our souls that no other God or what other God stood for stands in the way of Jesus Christ in our lives and in our hearts and in our minds. God, I pray that we check, check the security blanket that we put over ourselves, that we, we check the things that seem so constant and common. We check to make sure that we're not submitting to a natural law instead of following the law of God. I pray that everybody in here, as we move forward, who feels like they've been holding back because they're too afraid to let go, because they're too afraid to to risk what they've had to find out what they could be. God, I pray that the Holy Spirit and the body of believers around them help them release those things and let go to pursue the call of Jesus Christ in their lives. God, I pray that the people who have let things go and who are, who are out there risking, taking the risks, making the steps, that the Holy Spirit comforts them and that we edify them and we surround them. We don't belittle them for making a quote-unquote bad financial decision, but we uplift them and encourage them as a body of believers with our heart and mind set on bringing the kingdom of heaven here on earth thank you, God, that you will not leave us, you will not forsake us, and even when you call us into something that we might not be strong in, we might be weak in, we might be insecure in, that it's your strength that will be shown, not our own. We know you are a God that looks forward to interjecting himself into the story of mankind, and the best way to do that is to get low. I pray that we all humbly seek you and lay our our desires down at the feet of Jesus to follow his calling. God, we lift up your name. We worship you. We give you all the glory and honor this morning. We just, we love you, Jesus, and Christ, be magnified in this place and in our hearts. Give you all the glory and honor this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. strong and worship you if it puts me through the fire I'll rejoice cause you're there too and I won't be formed by feelings I hold fast to what is true if the cross brings transformation I'll be crucified with you cause death is just a doorway into resurrection life if I join you in your sufferings, then I'll join you when you rise. And when you return in glory, with all the angels and the saints, my heart will still be singing, or my song will be the same. Christ be magnified, just let us
Christ be magnified in me. 